Welcome to the UP Tech Talk podcast, where we explore the use of technology in the classroom, one conversation at a time. This week, adjunct instructor Peter Pappas from UP School of Education joins us to discuss project-based learning. Welcome to the UP Tech Talk podcast. This is Ben Kahn here at the University of Portland. Today I'm joined by, by my co-host Maria Erb. Hello, Maria. Hey, Ben. Yeah, and today we also have with us in the studio Peter Pappas, who's an adjunct instructor in our School of Education. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks, and thanks, and thanks for the invite. So we invited you here today. Um, you're kind of one of our more ed techie uh, professors that we have on campus, so we always love to have you on. This is actually, I think, your second time, if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, and we invited you on today to talk a little bit about some of the methodologies that you're using in your courses, which include, is it um, ed methods? Is your there course? is a uh, course in the spring called ed, ed Tech Methods that's uh, for undergrads. And then in the fall, I teach a social studies methods class, but our website's called edmethods.com. Right, right, that's so, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, great. And so some of the methodologies that you're using to actually teach those classes, and that includes a heavy emphasis on project-based learning. Correct. Well, Peter, you've been doing project-based learning for a long time, as far as, as I can remember anyway that I've been here. You've, you've been kind of in the forefront to, to just really run with that idea. Can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what is project-based learning and, and how do you employ that in the classroom? Sure. Uh, first of all, a little definition of terms. There's, there's project-based learning, and some people also refer to uh, kind of problem-based learning. I think they're kind of the same thing. Um, whether it's a project or a problem, what really happens is you you set a goal for your students, uh, a problem to solve, a project to complete, and that becomes the sort of rationale for the learning. You know, typically in the old days, when I first started teaching, uh, you know, I was a high school history teacher, we would, you know, I'd lecture, 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 and then maybe if we had time, we'd do an activity, okay? This really turns this on its head. In other words, we are going to set out to achieve a goal, to solve a problem, to design a project, and that becomes the sort of guiding force that's going to compel students to learn content, to learn specific skills, to basically achieve that goal. So it's not an add-on, it's the engine that's really driving the instruction. So your students take on the role from the get-go of being consultants. They're, they're active content creators from the very beginning? Mm-hmm. Well, what I've done um, in the social studies methods class, for, for example, back in 2013, uh, we teamed up with the uh, Oregon Nikkei Legacy Center, which is a small Japanese-American history museum in Old Town. Uh, and I, I live nearby, and I had gotten to know their ed director, and I basically said, what could you do with 12 curriculum consultants? And she said, you got to be kidding me. That's great because they have a small budget. You know, they, you know, it's a very small operation. And so I said to my students, guess what? Um, in addition to the stuff we're doing, you're going to be a consultant to a museum designing curriculum for them. And, of course, the students said, well, what are we supposed to do? 
And of course, in a good PBL style, I said, I don't know, you're consultants, you have to talk to the client, find out what they need. And so right from the very beginning, we approached it that way. And I thought the, uh, the best comment was um, one of the students about a couple of weeks in goes, man, I'm really learning a lot about Japanese American internment and you know, sort of what happened during World War II. And that really wasn't necessarily the assignment, but in order to achieve the goal, students had to be thinking about curriculum design and they're, you know, they're studying to be teachers. They had to be thinking about content and they had to be thinking about designing something for an external audience. In other words, they're not working for their professor, their teacher. They're really working as professionals do for the public. And what's the feedback that you get from your students on this style of learning? Uh, well, it, it depends. <laughs> you know, we have a lot of students who are very good at doing what you'd like them to do, and they're very comfortable at it, and uh, they're very proficient at it. And with some amount of guidance, they will turn out great material. Um, some of those students are less comfortable when they're not exactly sure what you're looking for. Um, so there were some students, I think, who are a little edgy about it, uh, like, well, what's this supposed to look like? What, what are we supposed to do? And et cetera. And I'm usually able to work with them and say, look, you know, in the rest of your life, you routinely get involved in endeavors and sports and whatnot where you have to, you know, achieve a goal. I said, this is really no different. And I said, education is really a social dynamic. You know, we, we learn as social animals. And, and so this isn't about following instructions. There isn't a recipe here. This, this is about you doing something that's, that, that you're really proud of. Uh, so for that crew, I can usually bring them along. There's another whole group of students that just totally glom onto this. This is great because they would prefer not to have to follow a recipe. They would like to be able to inject some of their own thinking into the situation. Yeah, I think that's interesting. So one thing that we talk about on this podcast a lot is flipped learning. So mm -hmm. the idea of kind of taking the lecture or quizzes or whatever out of the classroom and doing that out of the classroom, and then that makes room inside the classroom for more like structured activities or even free-form discussions and things like that. But it sounds like to me like project-based learning kind of takes that even a step further and it's in class out of class whatever it is you're actually working on a product that's actually as you said kind of the engine of the learning that then happens so as a teacher then uh, would you say that your role in supporting the students learning is more almost as like a mentor to kind of like guide them through their own process rather than focus on the material well um, you know I think in the old days when I first started teaching, I thought my job was to get up and lecture and to very clearly and slowly explain things to people and they would there, you know, then know them. Mm -hmm. Okay. And over many years of teaching, I evolved into a whole nother uh, methodology. So for me, I see my job as a teacher to design learning experiences to provoke reflection. I think that's what I do for a living. Mm -hmm. And I do them in different situations with different groups of people. You know, I've worked as a consultant and a trainer, and I've been in lots of different environments. And in this particular case, I'm in a class that's in a graduate or an undergraduate program with X number of students one day a week for three hours, et cetera. So um, 
my job is to try and design a learning experience and then to look at all the kinds of efficiencies that I can bring to that. So for example, you mentioned uh, flipped learning. So there are a lot of things that I'd like my students to be able to do uh, that I don't necessarily want to explain to them. Take up class time. So um, I make these short little videos. I have YouTube playlists that are associated with different skill sets. And I tell my students, okay, you know, we have a WordPress blog. I'm not going to teach you WordPress, but here's a playlist and every little step of the way, here's a 30 second or 45 second video. So I'm able to leverage a lot of class time that could be used for direct instruction to, for interaction, which to me is the key behind flipping a class. Um, so, in, so in this particular case, I'm able to provide a lot of one-on-one -on -one guidance with individual students or teams of students as we move forward in these projects. Um, and of course for them, because they have an external audience for their work, it really ramps up the sort of motivation because instead of working to turn in something to the teacher who hopefully will turn it back to them, you know, in a prompt fashion, they're really working for as uh, professionals do, mm -hmm. you know, in a more public environment. So I'm curious about what's the biggest surprise that your students have um, from working with an external audience, you know, they're so used to working just for the teacher, right, or just working for classroom feedback. Mm -hmm. But when they actually have this external audience that you know, is, is looking at the end result, what's what's the biggest surprise for them? Well, I think one of the biggest surprises is that anyone would even care to see their work. Um, we've had uh, every every class I've taught here at UP, we've always designed a multi-touch book using iBooks Author uh, and made it available on the iBooks store for free, okay? Well, you know, I just looked and their books have been downloaded about 16,000 times from well over two dozen countries around the world. And I'm about to see a new class for the first time today and I will share that with them. Um, our blog gets a lot of traffic and I'll show stats. Uh, people will comment on student blog posts and I'll get a comment from a student saying, oh, oh my God, someone's making a comment on my blog post. What am I supposed to do? I said, I don't know. We'll think about it and write back to them. And, you know, so, so I, I think what they're startled by is the fact that, that somebody cares what they're doing. Um, and it's not just a teacher and it's not just for a grade. Do you think that changes the way that students approach work when they know that the audience is public instead of just for one person? Well, I do know that every time I've shown whatever my current class is, the work that prior classes have done, they always sort of look at it and they're a little taken back like this is really good. And then there's a pause and then they go, ours will be better. <laughs> you know, we, we can beat this. I mean, it's not really a competition, but uh, I, 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 th I think it's really motivated. Students really want to make a difference. Uh, this, this coming fall, we're, we're going to get back into a more intense PBL project, and I've been uh, uh, working a bit in advance with the Oregon uh, Jewish uh, Museum and Center for Holocaust Education. I think I have the title right. And they have a wonderful Holocaust memorial 
in Washington Park, which it, it really is very evocative of feeling, but there's no very little or no guidance to what's going on there. This is, there's no labels, there's no instructions as to what you're seeing or why you're seeing it. At the same time, they don't have any curriculum for it. So my students are going to design curriculum for that. And I think coming at a time when we're sort of revisiting questions about history and people's perspective on history, I, th I think it'll be somewhat cathartic for my students to feel that they could, they could make a statement and, and perhaps speak on behalf of people who can't speak for themselves. So I think that's sort of an interesting element in that we will both be working with the museum, we'll be designing curriculum for middle school and high school teachers to use when they bring their students there, but at the same time, my students might feel that they're maybe making the world a slightly better place. Yeah, that's a really powerful concept. Um, do you think that this, this idea of project-based learning, all these real-world projects that you're talking about, is that applicable to every discipline? I mean, biology classes, chemistry mm -hmm. classes, everything? Well, you know, I used to teach this way back as a high school teacher. And I've got loads of examples of things we've done, which I'm not going to talk about. Um, I, I, I think it really begins by looking at your curriculum, looking at your syllabus, looking at what you really feel is important for students to know and be able to do it you know, the end of the course, and then say, is there a genuine project that really might meet these goals? In other words, not doing a project for the sake of doing a project, and not doing a project just to have fun and we're not going to really study anything, but to say, is there a task or a problem or something that we could do, especially based in the community, which will require students to master the skills and knowledge that this course is really all about. So as you look at things like um, most any subject, you could certainly turn it into a kind of community-based question. I mean, there are underserved groups throughout the community who might benefit for, from something which at the same time would help a science student learn more about their subject. Or it might be a, a kind of a community-based writing or publishing project which would certainly you know, assist someone who's who's in the humanities. Um, certainly, math projects. I mean, there's all kinds of things to be measured and uh, uh, quantified. Uh, so, yeah, I I do think it could be done anywhere in any subject at most any grade level, um, K K through higher ed. Uh, the key thing is not to force it, not to make it the thing but make it the, the sort of engine that really drives the instruction that you really feel is needed in this course. So Peter, you said that project-based learning, it's important not to make it the thing, which mm -hmm. I think is, I've heard a similar quote from you about education technology in the past, if I'm not mistaken, right? Mm -hmm. It can be this great support for learning. Um, so teaching an ed tech class, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your philosophy of how you integrate education technology into curriculum. Well, uh, we piloted a new course last spring for undergrads, which I believe is going to become a required course. Uh, and these were primarily seniors um, uh, from many different disciplines. So, I mean, these are students studying to be math teachers, you know, English teachers, etc. cetera. Um, and so what I really did is I, I tried to look at some essential uh, 
teaching elements, things that are very important skills for teachers to be able to master. For example, having students collaborate in a positive way, let's say, or run an efficient uh, uh, discussion group in class, or organize uh, information in a way that can be shared effectively or efficiently. And then we sort of experimented with different platforms and tools to try and make that possible. So for example, uh, you know, this was right after the election. Fake news was all over the place. Uh, we're in an ed tech class, so we're really talking a lot about the media and, you know, social networks and so forth. And so students wanted to do something about fake news, you know, uh, fight fake news. So what we ended up, what sort of bubbled out is I said, hey, you know what, this this will make a perfect showcase book be because I like those multi-touch books to showcase the best work of the students. So I said, really at the heart of fighting fake news is being a critical thinker. So why don't you design a lesson in critical thinking in your discipline? And I'm gonna invite you to find some ed tech tools that might make that more effective. And then we'll document all, all those lessons as part of our multi-touch book. So that's exactly what we did. And we called it Lessons in Critical Thinking, though. And I think the intro mentioned a little bit about fake news, but it really mm -hmm. wasn't a highly politicized book or anything like sure. that. It was really about critical thinking in math, in English, in social studies, et cetera. Well, do you feel that your, your students coming into the ed tech class, <clears throat> do they, is, is your class an elective for them? Well, it was an elective last year, but it's going to be required. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'm wondering if you're if you're going to see a change in enthusiasm. Well, <laughs> I'm just I'm curious because you know uh, students have that sort of mixed uh, some trepidation right when, when right mm -hmm. when the, when it's about using technology in the classroom versus the ones that have self selected in the sure. past to to come to your class. So I'm wondering how you're you're preparing for that. Well, the the way I'm preparing for that is by saying we're going to use a tool and let's talk about how that changed the level of interaction in the instruction. How did it work? Was it useful? You know, was the juice worth the squeeze sort of thing? You know, I mean, we had to set this up. You had to learn how to use it. We used it. And tell me about that lesson. How did that work? And typically, I only do things which really work well. Uh, and which I think are good at demonstrating the fact that they actually improve the quality of teaching and learning. So I think for a group of people going out into the educational field, having their toolkit enhanced with all these items, and I typically pick things which are somewhat platform agnostic, are usually free applications, so I don't try and showcase something that they then have to go plunk down a lot of money to get or that their schools might, might, might not have. A lot of my students um, in their final evaluations uh, last term, the big thing they said is, I wish we had this course earlier in our program. Mm. In fact, I passed that along because I had all second semester seniors Ooh. and they were saying, we should be doing this as juniors. Now, whether that happens or not, I don't know. All right, Peter, well, thanks for a great discussion. Uh, while we have you here and before we let you go, um, we're going to have to get your tech pick of the week as part of our <laughs> recurring <Right. laughs> segment. Do you mind going first? No, I don't at all. Uh, well, I'm, I 
I confess to being an Apple fanboy, and so my latest tech pick is called Clips. Mm -hmm. It's a free app for the uh, iPhone or the iPad. It's a real stripped-down version of iMovie and very much oriented towards social media, and it allows you to very quickly and easily make a short film. You can either do, uh, um, you know, just a just a sort of headshot of yourself. One of the cool things I like is it has accessibility built right in. So one of the features is you 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 can actually have it dictate all of the words and it automatically transcribes them. You can go in and edit the flaws. So it's really great for making instructional things, uh, dropping in other footage, photos you have. There's lots of special effects, little emojis, and then it plays really nice with social media. So you can shoot it up to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or just use it in the classroom. In fact, we're using it today. <laughs> yeah, very cool. I mean, I just share that I, um, as a graduate student, I used clips for a couple of projects that I was working on and found it super e easy to use and intuitive. Um, and I know as we're talking more about social media and accessibility and things like that, we're thinking like, hey, this is the only way to actually get a captioned video onto Instagram. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually got myriad possible uses around around the uh, sphere. Maria, did you did you come up with a pick? Um, ben, I did not. I uh, again, I purged <laughs> all my apps, um, trying to free up some space on my phone. So when I reinstall some things, I'll let you know. What, oh, well, what I, I think like again. doing like a good cleaning, like an app inventory, <laughs> and just getting rid of all the cruft, that could almost be a this pick is, of itself. You is, know? This is, is cruft a word? Yes, yes absolutely, it's a sure. word. <laughs> this is the this is the key: good digital hygiene. That's, That's right. what yeah. you need. That's right. Yeah. All right, well, Maria's got her phone leaning at me. For my pick, I'm going to go with Overcast. This is a, a podcatcher app, which, Maria, I know that you're very fond of, yeah. podcatchers. Uh, this particular one is iOS only, unfortunately, um, but it's just a really great – if you listen to a lot of podcasts, it's definitely worth checking this one out. Um, one of the cooler features of it is that it will automatically go in and, uh, like, eliminate pauses and stutters. And over the course of many months or years, that can actually save you a crazy amount of time. Well, it actually doesn't save you any time. It just lets you listen to more podcasts, right? Um, but I, I haven't looked in a while, but the last time I looked, it was like dozens of hours shaved off of my podcast listening regimen. So wow. definitely want to check out. It is free. Um, you can pay for a subscription if you want to get rid of the ads. So that's going to do it for this installment of the UP Tech Talk podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks, Thanks Peter. UP Tech Talk is a bi-monthly podcast with co-hosts Ben Kahn and Maria Erb of Academic Technology Services and Innovation that explores the use of technology in the classroom. One conversation at a time. We invite you to subscribe to the show on iTunes and Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. To continue the conversation with us on social media, you can find Ben on Twitter at TheBenCon and Maria at HerbFarm. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please visit our website at sites.up.edu slash techtalk. And browse our archives for dozens of episodes featuring great conversations with our UP faculty guests. Mm -hmm.